run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. They watch Seth Klein as he takes a large card in one hand and the white flag in the other to give the white flag to the man who has one lap to go and the checkered flag to the winner. Standing here now, he is watching for Wallard. I thought perhaps Mike Nazrick was going to get around ahead of Wallard, but it looks like the checkered flag is going to be taken by car number 99 before Mike Nazrick in car number 83, a rookie making his first appearance at Indianapolis, gets his white flag. Mr. Klein is peering up the track. 99, here he comes, Lee Waller, direct maze of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway has taken the 35th 500 mile race in which all records were broken from 10 miles through 500. Clear as a bell following the action back in 1951 when Lee Wallard indeed piloted car number 99, his Curtis Offie, to victory in the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Good evening to you. This is Beyond the Bricks, the stories of the stars, the traditions, even sometimes the urban legends that make the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Indianapolis 500-mile race the greatest venue and the greatest sporting event in the world, respectively. Mike Thompson joins me here this evening, Jake Quarry on Beyond the Bricks. And, Mike, you listened to that audio, and obviously anybody listening now can probably get a clue that we just started the decade of the 50s with Lee Wallard's win which is what we'll be talking about over the course of uh, this particular installment of Beyond the Bricks, talking about some of the names that maybe aren't as big or as recognized in terms of winners. But nonetheless, pretty fun audio to listen to right there. Absolutely. And uh, I'm really excited about tonight's show because we've got some really rare audio, including that particular cut, which people may not have heard before, which is interesting. You may not recognize that particular voice calling the finish. That's not Sid Collins. Uh, calling the finish of the 1951 Indianapolis 500. That's a man named Bill Fox. And Bill Fox was the longtime sports editor of the Indianapolis News, and he was a good friend of Sid Collins. And uh, what happened was the at the last minute, um, mutual broadcasting system pulled out um, because of uh, they had raised their rates uh, so high that uh, their their longtime sponsor, Perfect Circle, said, "Hey, you know that's too rich for us, so we're we're out." So Mutual pulled out of broadcasting the race. So at the last minute, um, WIBC got together with uh, Wilbur Shaw at the Speedway, and and they put on the race. And some Mutual stations ended up carrying the race with Sid as the the voice of the 500 prior to the speedway radio network being formed but what happened was sid sid was the uh you know the chief announcer of the race but he went down to do the victory lane ceremony and so the actual finish of the race was called by a man named bill fox who was up there in the booth with him for the uh, the finish of the race which i thought was interesting and i i played that for donald 
a few days ago and Donald had actually never heard that and didn't didn't even hadn't even heard that Bill Fox called the finish of that race and was really interesting interested to hear that Bill Fox referred to Lee Wallard as the Rex Mays of the Speedway. He just thought that was an interesting reference. So that's actually some pretty historic audio. So that's uh, one of the reasons I'm excited about tonight's show. And, and Mike, with that, what's interesting is a couple of things that you touched on there. Number one, that would have been, for all intent and purposes, the the final broadcast before what we now know as the IMS radio network, if I'm not mistaken, because it would have been in 1952 that Sid reached out to other radio stations beyond just WIBC to carry live action of the race. And I think 26 or somewhere like that joined on. But so that would have been the last year, correct? That's the last year prior to the Speedway radio network being formed. The Speedway formed the radio network. The Speedway brought that in house in 1952 and said, Hey, you know, we don't, we don't need mutual. We don't need to be basically hoping that somebody wants to carry this. Let's, let's bring this in house. So they worked together with WIVC in 1952 to form the Speedway radio network. But you're right. That was the last year prior to the Speedway network being formed, which was formed in 1952. Uh, Lee Wallard, who you just heard win the 1951 race was born in New York state in 1910 and came to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, not unlike probably a lot of drivers of that era. I mean, you obviously were coming off of when his racing career really gets underway in terms of, uh, you know, championship car results, Mike, coming off of the war. And at the same time, it wasn't like necessarily it is now where drivers just came and and I'm not saying this is even the case now, but there was a lot more, I guess, inconsistency in terms of making the show or being a given to qualify for the Indianapolis 500. Because if you look at Lee Wallard's career, when he first came to the Speedway, it was not a consecutive effort every single year that came in terms of racing a full schedule. But obviously in 1951, everything came together for him in the Indianapolis 500-mile race. And then tragedy struck him just a little bit, and we'll get into that. But uh, first off, if you could, a little bit about just Lee Wallard in terms of what we know of him as a man and his early racing career coming to Indianapolis. Well, I mean, he was a sprint car driver all the way back into the 30s. And, uh, you know, then he also, he was a veteran. He was in the Navy in the in the war um, and really didn't make it big until what we would consider late in life. I mean, he was, he didn't make his debut as a rookie until he was, you know, in his mid to late 30s. I think he was 37 or 38 when he was a rookie in 1948. So he... Um, you know, he didn't really make it quote unquote big, but that, that actually happened with a few drivers. I mean, same thing with Bill Holland. I mean, Bill Holland, everybody talks about Bill Holland being the, you know, rookie sensation of the late forties. And Bill Holland was, I think 39 when he was a rookie. So, you know, that happened guys. It, it took a while, um, for guys sometimes. So, um, you know, but Waller drove, you know, he drove some interesting cars. He drove the, the Wilbur Shaw, the, the car that uh, people know, the, the Boyle Maserati, that Wilbur Shaw won back to back in the early 40s. That car, um, you know, it's not like we think of immediately that, you know, uh, the cars that down, down at Daytona, you think of these cars that go into the museum down at Daytona immediately. Um, or Mr. Penske, you know, when Mr. Penske wins a, a race in his, you know, his museum out in, in Scottsdale, uh, you know, his, the, these cars were running for year after year after year. The cars that uh, 
that Wilbur Shaw won in the beginning of the 1940s and, and uh, you know, in 1939 and 1940, and then he led the race again in 41. Uh, you know, Lee Wallard was driving that car at the end of the, the 40s in 1949. So that car had a long life, and actually Bill Vukovic took his, his test in that car in the early 50s. So, you know, that was a car that uh, the, the things were a lot different than that these cars had a much longer uh, lifespan. But, but Lee Wallard, what's really tragic, you, you touched on it a little bit, but what's really tragic for, for Lee Wallard's career is at the pinnacle of his success, um, you know, he had just won. He's one of those drivers that um, – you know, at the pinnacle of their success, it all went away, unfortunately, for Lee Waller. He was injured uh, and burned very, very badly just a week after winning the 500, and he, he never raced again. So he he never was able to really capitalize on being the Indianapolis 500 winner. So it was it was really a tragic situation. I mean, he, he dominated uh, the race in 1951. Um, you know, he led over 150 laps on one of the most dominating performances that was ever seen in the 500. But unfortunately, he was not able to to capitalize on that because of the fact he was injured. And he did try one comeback um, in 1954. He did try to come back and, and just was not able to to race again. And, and so he was a, a very jovial gentleman of what I know of him. And, and one of the things I really found interesting about Lee Wallard is that, uh, you know, obviously, you know, everyone knows that I'm a, a big autograph collector of the drivers of the past. And one of the things I've always found interesting about Lee Wallard is he's a driver who had two different signatures. So if you were a, a an adult and he was signing for you, he signed Lee Wallard as, as we would know, you know, in, in uh, you know, cursive handwriting. But if you were a kid, he would actually draw his name into the shape of a roadster and so he would he would draw lee wallard but he would make a little picture out of it for you if you were if you were a child so which of the two is more valuable today um it's actually they're actually about the same i've i've seen more of the script lee wallard um that I think he signed more of those than more of those have surfaced in the hobby. I've seen many more of those than I've seen of the, I mean, I'm fortunate that I have one of each, um, you know, in my collection, I've got, I've got a, you know, a, a, you know, script Lee Wallard and I've got the, the drawn car, but I always found it was interesting that he, that he drew the little car for, for kids. So um, he's, it, it's just kind of an interesting quirk about Lee Wallard that he would take the time for little kids to draw you know, a, a race car with his name inside of it that you knew you had met Lee Waller. So, so uh, those, I'm oh, sorry, Mike, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say just an interesting guy. I, I thought personally. And for those that wanted to get to know him, one of the ways of course, that many people back in that era got to know drivers was when they would stop by to talk to Tom Carnegie, who was the public dress announcer at the Indianapolis motor speedway. He would do interviews or with those famous, famous and oh so familiar baritone pipes. Talk to them. Here is Lee Wallard talking with Tom Carnegie. This is Tom Carnegie at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, where the annual 500-mile race will be run on May 30th. Our guest today, Lee Wallard, who won this international speed classic last year by setting a new record of 126.244 miles per hour. 
Lee, you had some mighty tough luck after the big race last year, right? Yes, I did, Tom. Uh, I went to Reading, Pennsylvania just four days after Indianapolis and had one of those unfortunate accidents and was burned quite badly. But uh, I'm glad to be up and around again and be out here and say hello to everyone. Say, as the record holder for the race, Lee Wallard, what do you say it takes to win here in Indianapolis? Well, first of all, you must have a good car, a good crew. Uh, it's got to be a combination all the way around. You must have a car owner that isn't afraid to spend some money on his equipment. And uh, most of all, a chief mechanic, uh, he's the man that gets that thing running the way it should. And it's just got to be an all-around combination. Well, now you haven't talk to, talked a bit about uh, the driver's ability. Well, uh, <laughs> you do have to have a little bit of that too, Tom. Now tell us, uh, I know a driver must be in top physical condition for the race. When do you first get tired, let's say? Well, as long as it's there's someone giving you some competition all the time, you don't usually think about getting tired. All you're looking forward to, like this past year, was to stay out front and try and get some of that $100 a lap. But uh, towards the end of the race, around 400 miles, then those laps are starting to get real long. Now, naturally, Lee, you'll be pulling and rooting for the two-car Bellinger team. Do you think Tony Bettenhausen or Dwayne Carter can win this year? Well, uh, as I've mentioned before, Ballinger does have a good crew, and I'm sure with Tony and Dwayne Carter driving the two cars, they have as good a chance as anyone out here, and uh, I'm sure they both have good automobiles. Now, do you think anyone, any driver, will break your record this year? Well, uh, you'll have to take into consideration the weather, if it's a nice clear day and not too much wind, and also the fact that uh, last year I didn't have too, too much time under the caution flag. If the caution flag comes out much, I'm sure it'll be slower than last year. Mm -hmm. But uh, you had the green light most of the way right, uh, last year, right? Yes, I did, Tom. It was only just out for, I think, a fraction of a lap. It wasn't too long. And then when that caution flag uh, comes out, you really have to slow down. You're supposed to, but uh, everyone kind of finds out where the accident is, and then from there on, they, they run pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, then that uh, you're always hoping that that green flag comes right back up. Well, Lee, uh, what condition was your car in? at the finish last year. We've had, heard a lot of stories about it. Now you tell us. Well, the car itself, the motor was in perfect condition as we found out when it was torn down. But uh, we did have a lot of other small things that were wrong. The frame was fractured in a few places. The mag strap was broken. Of course, everyone knows the brakes. Uh, the brake unit on the right rear wheel came off and I had no brakes. But just a, a, a lot of little things. Now, Lee, what speed do you think will be necessary to win one of the 33 starting positions this year? I think it'll take between 133 and 134 mile an hour to get into the race. Thanks, Lee Wallard, for this special interview, and good luck to you and your recovery. And we'll see you here in Indianapolis on Friday, May 30th, when the 36th annual 500-mile race will be run off. And, of course, Mike, actually, when I said uh, the public address system, that very well could have been from WRTV with Tom Carnegie, where he was the sports director at the time. But um, you talk about special audio. That also falls right into that category. Yeah, and that's one of the things I love about this show is that we have the opportunity to bring 
interviews of these drivers from the past because, you know, how often do you get a chance to hear Lee Wallard speak? You know, I know that I hadn't heard Lee Wallard do interviews before and things like that until I started hearing some of this amazing, um, you know, archival audio that's that, that's available. So I think it's it's really special to hear and bring back to life some of these some of these folks. And, and it's great. First of all, you get to hear Tom Carnegie, so that's it's just that's a neat situation in and of itself. But, but to be able to hear some of these drivers from the past, um, you know, a guy like Lee Wallard, who, you know, he, you know, you said it, I think, best at the beginning of this show. There's some folks tonight that that you know, hey, won the Indianapolis 500 that we're going to talk about that that maybe don't get talked about as much as uh, you know some of the other folks. I mean, we we talk a lot about the the folks that uh, you know we've had the pleasure of seeing in person a lot over the years you know the the marios and the and the and big al and bobby unser and and you know because they're they're contemporaries or people we've, we've been able to we've been able to go up and talk to those folks but but to hear from lee wallard who you know he passed away sadly in 1963 um only a, a week after president kennedy was assassinated so you know to hear from lee wallard uh, I just think that's really, really special stuff. And as we talked about with Lee Wallard before we get on to, and by the way, good evening to you and thank you for listening. My name is Jay Query. That is the voice of Mike Thompson. You're listening to Beyond the Bricks, our stories from beyond just the bricks at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway here on 93.5, 107.5, the fan in Indianapolis. Lee Wallard, as Mike had mentioned, was severely burned in an automobile accident that led to 27 skin grafts. As a matter of fact, it happened in Reading, Pennsylvania, just after winning the Indianapolis 500. And, Mike, it's interesting, after winning Indy, and that happens to Lee Wallard, you know, he had all of the skin grafts. He was terribly burnt. I actually went back a few years ago and found some newspaper articles from the fact of the excitement level, as a matter of fact, where he finally rehabilitated himself from a physical standpoint and got the sponsorship money to in fact be able to get in a car and try to again qualify for the Indianapolis 500 and in 1954 that was the vision some nearly you know obviously three years after winning the Indianapolis 500 and being burned in that accident and unfortunately for Lee Wallard he was not able to make the race and I think you know he gave it the old college try but unfortunately the injuries and everything that he went through just proved to be too much to get back into a race car yeah and it was again that was a really sad situation that he that he tried that hard to do that and that happened unfortunately to a couple different winners in the 1950s there were there were a couple drivers who won the race and then were pretty severely injured fairly quickly after their victory and it really set their career back i mean it happened to troy rutman Troy Rutman won the race and then was injured in later in 1952. Um, and he was out for almost two years. Um, and then it also happened to uh, Pat Flaherty. So, you know, that's uh, unfortunately what happened um, at the time. And, and those guys, uh, you know, Rutman was able to come back and, and Pat Flaherty, um, you know, came back and, and had a, a little bit of a career. But, uh, you know, Pat Flaherty wasn't able to come back to the level he was at before he was injured, too. So, it, you know, it was a very sad situation. And, and in the case of the person we're talking about right now, Lee Waller wasn't even able to come back at all. And, and he had a very, very uh, you know, hard life and a difficult life after his injuries with all the skin grafts and the, and the difficult pain he, he 
was in until the time that he passed away in 1963. But, uh, uh as whatever I people I know who had either had met Lee Wallard or know about him was always jovial with people and and trying to uh, you know be friendly and sign autographs and and it sounds like he was uh, really quite a guy. Lee Wallard, of course, was also scored. Interestingly enough, he could have said that you know, hey, I was a Formula One driver because back in those days, you did receive points for the Indianapolis 500 in the Formula One World Championship. Uh, grab a hold, by the way, of your Chuck Taylors. Maybe put on your your poodle skirt or your bobby socks because we're talking about the 50s. Lee Wallard is just one of the stars of the decade in the Indianapolis 500, and we'll get to talking about some of the others. When we return here on 93.5, 107.5, the fan, it's Beyond the Bricks. Mike Thompson and Jay Corey. Now stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing. You can win yourself a whole year of wonderful eating in Stark and Wetzel's big 500-mile race contest. Just list the drivers you think will finish first, second, and third in this year's race. Attach a label or facsimile from any Stark and Wetzel meat product. Mail your entry to me, Sid Collins, Station WIBC, Indianapolis. The winner with the closest correct answer, with the earliest postmark, receives a 12-pound box of delicious Stark and Wetzel meats every single month for an entire year. And their 24 other big prizes, too, including delicious Stark and Wetzel steaks and hams. So hurry and send in your guests to the drivers you think will finish first, second, and third in this year's 500-mile race. Enclose a Stark and Wetzel label or facsimile mailed to Sid Collins, WIBC, Indianapolis. Put the word contest on the envelope. Enter as often as you like. Just enclose a Stark and Wetzel label with every entry. Contest closes midnight, May 29th. Decision of judges is final. Your guests for the first, second, and third place finishers in this year's race. I'd like to clarify that that is a spot from 1958 and sending that to WIBC today, Mike Thompson and myself are not inclined to send you 144 pounds of meat. Did he say, Mike, 12 pounds of meat once a month for an entire year? Or did he say, was he implying one pound per month for a year, which would be 12 pounds? I think you get 12 pounds of trophy loaf. And and look, if you're getting trophy loaf or old-fashioned loaf, I, that's a good deal for anybody. <laughs> I mean, what what herd of buffalo are sending in to win that much meat? Good Lord. Hey, St- Stark and Wetzel, they were, they were providing the meat back in the 50s. <laughs> I guess, man. I guess. Uh, Mike Thompson and Jake Quarry here on Beyond the Bricks, and we are talking about the meat of the matter, which is some of the stars of the 1950s. And unfortunately... Some of them are drivers that we didn't get to know a lot in their, you know, right after winning Indy because of the tragedy that befell them in the world of racing. And that was kind of the reality back then. That includes a driver who was born in Los Angeles, California, and had the misfortune, if you will, of running and winning the Indianapolis 500 in a year where tragedy was obviously kind of the storyline. I'm talking about in 1955, another Californian, Bill Vukovic, was fatally injured in that race. But, of course, the race went on, and it was Bob Swikert who went on to get the win. This is how it sounded when he took the checkered flag in 1955. We can't see him yet, but here he comes down. I'm sure that beautiful pink car, the checkered flag is out. Bill Vandewater, the starter, holds it high, waves it, and there's Bob Swikert, the winner of the first-time annual 500-mile race. Now, Bob Swikert was an individual who unfortunately, as we will talk about here upcoming, 
people didn't get to know him a lot after his win at Indianapolis, per se, because it wasn't like he was one who retired and went around and got to kind of go with all the spoils of a retired driver becoming a middle-aged or an old man as an Indianapolis 500 winner. But he won the 500-mile race, as you just heard there, in his fourth start. He came as a rookie in 1952. He started 32nd in that race, turned 77 laps before a differential knocked him out. And he, uh, or excuse me, he finished in the 26th position, started 32nd, finished in the 26th position after 77 laps. He didn't actually have a race where he was running at the end until his third race. That happened after he started ninth, finished 14th, and then his breakthrough there in 1955. But in terms of getting to know him, we once again turn to an interview that took place once he was a 500 winner, and it was with Tom Carnegie. This is Tom Carnegie reporting from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, home of the International Speed Classic, the famed 500-mile race, presenting the 500-mile winner of 1955, Bob Swikert, and out to repeat again for the second year in a row. Bob, it's nice to have you at the track again this year. Well, thank you, Tom. How long did it take you to realize your ambition to win the 500? Uh, well, Tom, after I once got here in 1950, uh, it took me uh, six years, although my first uh, time in competition was 1952. But this also, being my first time to win, it was my first time to finish the race. I had gone out with mechanical failures of one kind or another three years prior. What have you been doing since winning the event last year? I imagine, first of all, you've been eating regular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Put my kids back on milk. <laughs> well, you were the national driving champion of 1955 among yes. your other honors tell us about the races you were in how many you won well tom i only won one national championship race and got three seconds i uh, was leading a couple of them and had uh, the misfortune to fall out late in the race i uh, won the midwestern sprint uh, championship also i understand the, you were in sebring florida too, yes i was just going to say about the most fun i had all winter was driving the sports car it was my first experience and uh, although it isn't the the uh, split second hard kind of racing that that we do it's uh, it's very interesting and a lot of fun because you're doing a lot of shifting you know and braking and it's real it's a lot of fun has it uh, made a big difference in your personal life Bob winning the race well, not so much. The only thing is I don't have any time to myself anymore. That's what I wondered, if the family yeah, was objecting now. <laughs> Tell us about I, your family, Bob. Well, I have um, I have a little girl, two and a half years old, and then, uh, you know, my wife, uh, I have two stepchildren also. They mm -hmm. had last year, you know, that I had three children, but really only one of them is, is mine. Well, now, how does uh, your new car this year compare with your winning car of a year ago? Well, the car is considerably lighter, and it's just a little bit narrower and it has a, a more rigid frame and it although it has the same uh, same Myron Drake engine and basically it's the same automobile it's just beefed up in spots and lightened in others and narrowed up a little bit what number will it carry Bob carry what's the name number one and what's the name of it it's the DA lubricant special and by virtue of carrying number one that means that you were the number one driver in the nation in 1955 right Bob? yes that's right and that's quite an honor and that's the first time you've had the privilege of carrying that number it means a lot right yes that's right say what will be the fastest qualified speed this year, Bob. You ought to be able to make a prediction. Well, I have. I, I don't say that uh, a, a fellow will average this speed, but I think that someone will turn a lap 
146 miles an hour, maybe just one lap. Would you like to be the fellow that does it? Yes, I would. I'd like to sit on the pole, although I think the, the main thing is to get in the race. You know, I mean, you, mm -hmm. if you don't get in, you can't you can't win it. How far back did you start in last year's field of 33? I started 14th. And you came up and won the event, so yes. that proves you don't have to be in that front I row. I was third at, uh, third at 20 laps and then was never further back than third. Say, the total prize fund for being the fastest qualifier this year is $2,500. So you're going to shoot for it, and that'll be some more of that money that you've picked up over the last few months. Well, right? we'll give it a whirl if we're ready to go on the first day. The car isn't quite completed, although we expect to have it ready by the end of the week. Thank you very much, Bob Swikert. Time trials, 19th and 20th at the 500-mile race. And then again the following weekend, the 26th and 27th. The 500-mile classic itself is set for May the 30th. Indianapolis has the welcome sign out for you. Be in Hoosierland on Memorial Day. Bob Swikert was pretty good with his prediction because the fastest qualifying average, 145.596 miles an hour in 1956. The fastest lap of the race was turned at just over 141 miles an hour. That was by Paul Russo, 141.416. Swikert's DA lubricant machine car number one that he talked about, he started in the 10th spot. He finished four spots higher but sadly, tragically, Mike, that audio that we heard from Bob Swikert was just a couple of weeks inside of a month, as a matter of fact, in the final year or the final month, I should say, of his life. Yeah, uh, sadly, he lost his life in a sprint car accident at Salem um, in June of 1956, just a, just very couple weeks after the 1956 Indianapolis 500. Um, so we, we lost Bob Swiker very, very soon after this audio was, was, was recorded. One thing I think people really need to know about Bob Swiker though, was he was an expert mechanic in addition to being a great driver. Uh, one, a story that Donald told me that I really enjoyed was the fact that, uh, after Swiker, after he qualified for the race in 55, that he won, um, AJ Watson was the, was the, you know, master mechanic obviously on that team, but Watson had to leave Indianapolis because of an emergency. So the person who actually tore down the engine to get it ready and rebuilt it to get it ready for race day was Bob Swikert himself. He took care of the engine and got it ready. And so uh, at the victory banquet, AJ Watson gave him all the credit and said, Hey, the, the guy who built the, uh, you know, rebuilt the engine and got it ready was the guy who drove the car as well. So, you know, Bob Swiker was a man of many, many talents. I mean, an outstanding driver, uh, you know, he, he won the first Hoosier hundred at the fairgrounds. I mean, this guy was, was an amazing, amazing talent. And he mentioned in that, in that clip talking about doing some road racing and he was he was just getting interested in road racing and actually had aspirations to want to run you know overseas in formula one at some point and and was just starting to look at that when he was when he was tragically taken from us in in at salem in june when we come back, there are other stars from the 50s, unfortunately, and I promise we don't mean for it to be a theme, but some of those that we didn't get to know a lot as we carried them into, say, the 70s and 80s, and some of us never got an opportunity to meet them. But that's what this show is for. We'll talk about them when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. This is the friendly voice of Indiana, WYBC Indianapolis, 1070. Bernie Herman, you should be able to pick him up by now. Yes, I can. Uh, Cowboy Jimmy Bryan with a raise of the mid-afternoon set, glancing off that yellow-covered, black-covered, fine, eight-piece 
special and down to the northeast turn. And here you are, Lou Palmer. And here he is, Bernie, going by now. The number one, the Milan AP muffler car going by and out of our turn. He is truly a champ. Jim Shelton, you got him now. I sure do, Lou. He's coming around here in a beautiful way that he's been driving the whole day long. And I imagine that engineers and car owners and designers can take a tip on this car. Now here to call the race, the winner, our chief announcer, Sid Collins. Jim, it's a thrill for us as always to see a winner. And there's the checkered flag for Jimmy Bryan, champion of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And you can hear the crowd here, a throng of over 180,000 souls who have watched the race today, complete with a very bad start, a very tight race, a very thrilling finish. And Jimmy Bryan, USAC national champion, three times champion of Monza, now winning the one he really wanted, as everyone does, the greatest spectacle in speed here at the Indianapolis Speedway. That's how it sounded back on May 30th, 1958, when Jimmy Bryant drove to a prize purse of $105,574 as the winner of the 42nd Indianapolis 500-mile race. Mike, before we get to some audio of Jimmy Bryant and A.J. Watson talking with Sid Collins, this was, as we know from song, and you certainly know of my affinity for Jimmy Bryan, the cigar-smoking, always-joking Jimmy Bryan was a gregarious individual from Phoenix, Arizona, that I think was one of those. And I don't know. I wasn't alive in 1958. We can only go off of talking to those who were. But I've always gotten the feeling that Jimmy Bryan was a Dan Weldon type, to put it in local terms, or excuse me, in modern terms, in in the fashion of simply never met a race fan he didn't like, and there weren't many that didn't like him. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think if if there were people from the 1950s that I would have, can say immediately I would have wanted to meet Jimmy Bryan and Bob Swickert, I think would be right at the top of that list with, with Pat O'Connor as well. But, I mean, Jimmy Bryan was – you know, the every man, I think, of, of that era. I mean, everybody liked Jimmy Bryan. He had, uh, sounds like he had time for everybody. He was just, uh, he was just the man's man of that era. I mean, I, I, I've talked to some people who, who have had met him and, and they kind of told me that he was, you know, he was kind of a cross between Wilbur Shaw as a driver and John Wayne. You know what I mean? He was just kind of, he had all these different qualities about him. You know, he's kind of a movie star on one, one respect. And then the other respect, he was, you know, he was this outstanding driver, you know, it was all mixed into one person. And so uh, you're, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, he, he was just this one of a kind character, an amazing character who was, uh, you know, just a, we were just so lucky that, uh, you know, that he was an Indianapolis 500 driver at that time because he he just was he was just kind of a matinee idol, if you will. Of course, no driver can do what Jimmy Bryan did, as you heard Sid Collins mention in winning the race that everybody wanted without having somebody there that also knows a little bit about it. A.J. Watson was with him when both of them sit down, uh, sat, sit down, sat down to talk to Sid Collins. Here's how it sounded. Here in the control tower at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, we have two gentlemen we'd like for you to meet. One has gone fast all year, the USAC national champion, Jimmy Bryan, and a master mechanic, A.J. Watson, who made three cars go fast yesterday. One was a little bit unusual, though. A.J., the one on the pole, driven by Dick Rathman, the McNamara special, was your car until about a week ago, wasn't it? Uh, yes, I brought the car back here just to sell to try to make a couple extra bucks and 
Lee Elkins uh, was watching our other two cars run and uh, looked like they might go, so he decided to buy it. You built four cars then over the winter? No, I just built two new ones and then prepared the two old ones for the race. Oh, was uh, the car on the pole by Rathman one of the new ones or the older ones? It was one of the new ones. How did you happen to sell that particular one? Well, that's the one I built to sell. It was a duplicate of uh, the car Reese is driving, and uh, so well, I couldn't afford to run it myself, so I just sold it. How did you feel yesterday when your car got the pole and you weren't running it? Oh, I felt real good. Well, you should feel very proud. You have Ed Elysian in the John Zink Special with a 145.926 average and a one-lap track record of 146.508. And also you have Jimmy Reese in the other John Zink car in the front row. That's quite a record, A.J. Yeah, it looks pretty good on paper. <laughs> Don't you feel happy about it? I mean, because oh, yes, rather it, confident? Oh, it looks pretty good. Do you like to have your cars up front at the start of the race? Do you think it makes that much difference? Oh, it doesn't really make too much difference, but if you're sitting up there, uh, you must be able to go a little faster than the other guy. Do you think both boys got all they could out of the car? Oh, yes. Now, how about your other car with Larson? Well, we're still having a little trouble with Larson. I, we don't know what we're going to do. He's been here two years and about 2,000 miles, and uh, he can go one day, but the next day he can't. I don't know what we're going to do. They may consider replacing the driver then. Is that yeah, right? we're seriously considering changing. Mm -hmm. AJ, we'll get back to you in just a second. Here's Jimmy Bryan, the United States Auto Club's national champion, driving the Beland AP Special. Jimmy, you have uh, quite a reputation to uphold, at least here at the Speedway, with that car, haven't you? Oh, yes, I do, Sid. It's the car that won the race last year, as you and I and everybody else knows. And, uh, of course, Sam Hanks kind of went out on a limb and picked the car to win again with me driving. So I really got my work cut out for me. Do you like to be picked by somebody, or do you feel at all jinxed or, or superstitious about it? Well, I don't feel jinxed or superstitious about it, Sid, but uh, I wish they'd leave me alone. They picked several riders that picked me in about three years and hadn't done me a bit of good. Well, maybe I better not pick you then. Huh? Well, let's not this year. Well, I think everybody certainly feels you should have a mighty good chance. They say the car and the driver combination is what wins this race. We have the best driver in point standings, the champion driving the Ballon car, the AP Ballon car that won the race last year. That's quite a combination. And George Sally, the master mechanic, is a great one, too. Well, that's right. Uh, we figured it would be a, be a hard combination to beat, and uh, that's why I changed from my other ride and teamed up with George Sally and the Sandy Blonde of uh, AP. How many changes have been made in this car from the one that uh, won the race last year, Jim? Oh, very few, Sid. Uh, the seat had to be widened a little, naturally, and the pedals uh, placed in a different position, the brake pedals and throttle pedals. And then a little minor rework on the front end. Sam was having a little uh, front end romance, as we call it here at the Speedway. So George, throughout the winter, worked on the front end, and, and, and he has that real stable. And we don't have any trouble at all in the corners like Sam did. So actually, it should be easier for me than it was for Sam. Fans, Jimmy Bryan here is an inveterate cigar smoker. I've heard they put a cigar pouch right inside the automobile in the cockpit for you. Why, yes, I don't know what that was for, whether it was just uh, actually uh, for convenience or just a big joke. Well, you don't smoke cigars while you're driving, do you? No, uh, the wind blows them all to heck, Sid, so you can't keep them lit. You don't even put one in your mouth to chow on a little bit now and then? Well, maybe when you're warming up, but when you get up to 135, 140 miles an hour, you've had it. I don't know if you realize this or not, but when you came in yesterday after your time trial run of 144.185, which puts you on the inside of the third row, Jimmy Bryan, I had a stopwatch down there, and I timed how long it would take from the time the car stopped till you put the cigar in your mouth. You know how long it took? 
Well, it was a little late because they wouldn't let Frenchie in, and Frenchie's one of my crew members, and he's a cigar smoker, too, so I got it made this year. And he had a little trouble getting through the crowd, so it probably took a minute or so. It took about two minutes and five seconds, exactly, and I didn't think it would take that long, but they were taking your pictures first. Well, that's right. He had a hard time getting through. I know you'll break that record, I'm sure. Come on, Frenchie. Got to get there inside of two minutes. By the way, A.J. Watson, I should have clarified. In fact, in that race in 1958, his two cars, you heard him mention, not Jimmy Bryan, Jimmy Reese and Judd Larson. Judd Larson was not pulled. They ended up going ahead and starting the race with the rookie, and he finished the race actually in eighth after starting in the 19th position. But that race, Mike Thompson, was marred again, unfortunately, by tragedy, and we're talking about a huge accident at the outset. Yeah, a tragedy at the, at the start of the race where we lost um, the great Pat O'Connor, one of the most popular drivers to ever race at the Indianapolis 500, and someone that if you go out and talk to uh, the great A.J. Foyt, someone A.J. Foyt says was a huge, huge help to him as a rookie. When he was a rookie in 1958, he said Pat O'Connor was was someone who really reached out to him and helped him in his rookie year. Jim Shelton allowed race fans to get to know Pat O'Connor when they talked. Here's that conversation. On race day, we're going to have Jim Shelton, a veteran of eight of our network broadcasts on the Northwest Turn. And today at this moment, he stands by along the pit wall where he has the pole winner, Pat O'Connor. Jim, what's the story from down that way? Well, sit down here in the pit area. They're just singing in the rain. Pat, sing a little in the rain for us. <laughs> well, I could sure sing now if it just keeps raining. That means I have the pole position this year at the Speedway. Boy, it is pouring down rain right at the moment. Well, we can't say pouring down rain, but it's uh, sprinkling uh, the way you want it to sprinkle, isn't it? Well, that's right. Of course, it's not raining too hard, but it looks like this is all the activity for the day, and it certainly makes me awful happy. Of course, we're talking to one of the nicest fellows you'd ever want to meet and has done a great job for racing throughout the, the years. Pat O'Connor in number 12, and that's the Sumar Special, owned by Chapman Root. And Ray Nichols is his uh, crew chief. And Ray, you're feeling pretty good, aren't you? Very good right now. Yes, sir. Do you think that car would do a little better than that or not? No, uh, I think Pat got about all it had in it. Boy, he's a fine driver. Let's talk to uh, Tiny Worley, who also works on the car. Tiny, how are you? Well, I haven't got much to say, but Pat done a wonderful job on the car driving it. Sure did. Let's get back to Pat here for a second. Pat, you're pretty happy right now, and we have another happy guy right here who is Eddie Sachs who is in that number two position feeling real uh, chipper right now and we're standing in the rain as we said before now then uh, Pat uh, how many races have you had here well this makes my fourth race Jim why, uh, let's ask you this question. Why have we had so many spins and skids in practice this year? Must be a reason for that. Well, Jim, I gave it a lot of thought, and I don't know whether it's the answer or not, but the most logical thing I can think of is the fact that uh, uh, you have a narrow wheel, wheel tread on most of the automobiles here this year, and the narrow wheel tread on a race car makes it stick a lot tighter, but when it does break loose from the surface, it goes all at once. And, of course, a lot of the guys are going to lower gear because we have a smaller engine this year to wind them tighter to try to get more horsepower out of them and uh, therefore it makes the rear end brake loose a little quicker than usual with this low gear ratio so I think that's the uh, majority of the reasons there because you look back and most of the automobiles that's been spinning have been the narrow tread automobiles. Pat we're happy for you you're in the pole position and undoubtedly you're going to stick there because the rain is coming down heavier right now and of course the track closes at six o'clock our time. And, of course, speaking of tragedy, Eddie Sachs was mentioned in that broadcast as well. The 1950s, an era that brought us, of course, tragedy in racing, but 
also brought us a number of great gentlemen, great champions, and it goes without saying, spectacular drivers that helped make the Indianapolis 500 the greatest race in the world. Mike, appreciate pulling all the audio and the fun tonight. We'll do it again. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. All right. Appreciate everybody listening. This has been Beyond the Bricks.